Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to the Big T Trauma Series on Behind the Knife. In this series, we cover clinically-oriented material that focuses on how best to care for the traumatically injured and critically ill patients. My name is Patrick Georgioff, Trauma Surgery Fellow at the University of Texas Memorial Hermann Red Duke Trauma Institute in Houston, Texas. And today, I'm joined by Jason Brill, also a Trauma Surgery Fellow at the University of Texas in Houston and a Lieutenant Commander in the United States Navy Medical Corps. Great to be here. A quick disclaimer because of our mention of the United States Navy. The information or content and conclusions do not necessarily represent the official position of, nor should any official endorsement be inferred by, the United States Navy, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Today, we are going to be discussing transfusion medicine from a trauma surgery perspective. Darn right we are. So patients who are bleeding need blood, not crystalloid, not colloid. So how do we go about transfusing a trauma patient and what are the potential pitfalls? Good questions and things that we run into every day. So let's just start with a generic case. A middle-aged man is involved in a high-speed motor vehicle collision. On presentation, he's uh, hypotensive with no outward signs of bleeding. How are you going to manage him, Patrick? Right. So every single trauma patient needs to be approached in the same way, and that's with a complete and efficient primary survey. Now, if you need a refresher on the initial workup of a trauma patient, I would encourage you to check out Behind the Knife's Medical Student and Intern Survival Guide. And there are a couple episodes on trauma in that. And the easiest way to find these episodes, uh, through iTunes at least, is to search the podcast for Survival Guide or Medical Student, um, and that should bring up the episode. Okay, so let's skip the details for this case and just focus on our resuscitation since it's the, the main topic we're doing today. Let's say you have a large bore central venous catheter in place. Here in Houston, we tend to use a 9 French, 11.5 centimeter long dual lumen MAC aerogard or a similar size single lumen sheath placed in the subclavian, preferably, or if needed, the femoral vein. Patrick, what's next? Right, so if available, uh, I would start transfusing whole blood. And ideally, this would be done through a rapid transfuser with warming capability, something like a, a Belmont. Uh, now, the newest versions of these machines can transfuse at rates up to one liter per minute. I like it. So tell me about whole blood, because that's not available everywhere. I mean, when I was a resident, I didn't have that as an option. So what are the advantages? Why do we use that here? The simplest answer is that whole blood is what the patient actually bled out. So replacing that whole blood is ideal, rather than using fractionated components to recreate the whole. So even when you use one-to-one-to-one transfusion by which we mean a unit of packed red blood cells matched with a unit of plasma matched with a single unit from a six-pack of platelets or a sixth of an apheresis platelet unit. When you combine all those, you actually don't get back to whole blood. So the blood being given has coagulation factor concentration 65% of normal. The platelet count after mixing one-to-one is actually 88 and the crit averages out to 29%. Really? Uh, I figured you could just add it all back together again, right? Right. So that would be nice, but it actually doesn't match reality. So there are additional complicating factors, too, uh, in that platelets actually can't go through a Belmont. That's per manufacturer's recommendations. And filters uh, will remove about 30% of platelets, meaning they don't reach circulation. The same is true for about 10% of red blood cells due to filters, lysis, storage, et cetera, a number of other issues. 
And so really after you take into account that storage and the transfusing and filters and all these other things, that actually brings the effective concentrations of this one-to-one-to-one mix down to a platelet count of 55 and hematocrit of 26%. So not great, I would say. Okay, that is worth repeating. Once you mix up blood products in a one-to-one-to-one fashion, and we'll get into some of the history behind that, but once you do that and you're trying to recreate whole blood, taking dilution and storage and filtering into consideration, the mix that the patient is receiving on average has a crit of 26% and the coagulation factor concentration is 65% that of normal, that of whole blood that would be warm, and a platelet count of only 55. So, Patrick, why isn't everyone using whole blood? Mm -hmm. That makes component therapy sound really bad. It actually does, doesn't it? That's a complex answer. So much of it is based in the history of how we use transfusion. So by the end of World War I and during World War II, whole blood transfusions were actually the norm. Uh, But after World War II, the fractionation of whole blood into its components became widely accepted. And this replaced whole blood transfusion for a number of reasons. Now, first, uh, it's important to understand that the vast majority of blood transfusions of any kind are not actually occurring in the setting of hemorrhagic shock. That's right. Trauma-centric world here. Exactly. So we like to think we're the center of the universe, but actually sometimes we aren't statistically the largest group out there. So actually, hemophiliacs, cancer patients, and other non-injured, you know, slash medical patients don't typically need whole blood. That's part of the main reason for why fractionation of whole blood, you know, ever became a common practice. And fractionation allows for targeting of specific blood deficiencies. So the patient needs something, and we can give them that something. And that also improves logistics and appropriate use of a limited blood supply. Right, right. And, and, and as always, it, it is about the money. There are, all, there are also financial reasons. And after all, blood banking is, uh, it is a business, um, uh, you know, at least partly a business. And actually, the average blood center is operating at a slightly negative margin financially, which I didn't know. So let's talk about costs for a second. On average, a unit of plasma is about $50. That's actually one of the cheapest uh, blood products out there. And it can be stored frozen for up to a year and then thawed. And and there are a couple of other types, in fact, a couple of dozen subtypes of plasma. And so the shelf lives of those get pretty complex quickly. Right. Uh, Packed red blood cells, those are about 200 a unit, and they last for about 42 days in the fridge. And then platelets cost around $500, uh, and that's for either a six-pack or an apheresis. And you could do some – so – where I trained, we did five packs, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. five pack, six pack, something similar. Right. Uh, I, there are different I ways to break it I say six pack because that's what we, we used to have. But yes, they're considered equivalent. So those only have a shelf life of five days because they're stored at room temperature. Cryo is about $360 per unit. And our listeners should note that these are just the average raw costs, not the cost to actually transfuse a unit, which is much, much higher on the order of sometimes tenfold over the numbers we're giving you. Right. So interesting. But, you know, the unfortunate part of this shift to fractionated products is that it occurred with little understanding on how this might uh, affect different clinical scenarios, namely trauma. Now, it's important to note that the trauma patients getting massive transfusions are a relatively small population of patients. Um, and this population is certainly much smaller than the total number of patients who are getting transfusions for medical reasons, uh, for example, not from acute massive hemorrhage. 
But until recently, this small population of trauma patients wasn't really a focus of transfusion research. We now know that fractionated blood products are not quite as ideal as we thought they might have been for exsanguinating trauma patients, and there may be benefit to whole blood. Yeah, I, I would agree that that's a fairly balanced statement that sums up the, the current literature. One of the main reasons that we know this is because of the military. In the military, we have access to what we call a walking blood bank, where in an emergency, and we're talking about outside of the U.S. because this is not an FDA-approved process, we use it in austere environments where we don't have access to a nice refrigerator with fully screened blood all fractionated in its uh, appropriate cubby. So in these emergencies, I could call for pre-screened potential donors. Right, these a, are the soldiers. Yep, uh, war fighters exactly. are, pre, are all pre-screened, right? Yep. Um, so, for example, on my last ship, we had about 10% of the ship signed up to be part of the walking blood bank. They were part of a pre-screened group that was screened okay. when they gave blood before we left port. And then if we put over the 1MC, walking blood bank report to – it was actually dental where they had their blood drawn. Dental. Yep. Okay. Uh, it was right under us. It was uh, a short distance, and so they got their blood drawn, and uh, within about 10, maybe 15 minutes, I could have a bunch of warm, whole unit um, uh, blood products uh, upstairs ready to go. Right, so no effects from storage, cooling, anticoagulants, et cetera. It was exactly. All fresh. It okay. goes out into a bag and right into the, the next patient. So you could summarize this blood bank consisting of basically your comrades in arms walking around around you, uh, ready to sit in chair and just donate when, when they needed to. Okay, so unique situation. Yeah, so out of that experience, uh, there were several military studies associating a survival advantage with the early use of whole blood, a portion of that being warm whole blood from a walking blood bank as opposed to stored whole blood. One of the earliest of these was Rapine reporting the use of fresh whole blood in massive transfusion, good title, which describes a few distinct advantages of fresh, warm whole blood over component therapy. In this group, the 31st Combat Sport Hospital in Baghdad in early OIF around 2004 to 2005 is just one example, probably the earliest example okay. out there. So not long after, uh, to follow, uh, Spinella and colleagues wrote about this in the Journal of Trauma in 2009, and they showed an association between whole blood and decreased 24-hour and 30-day mortality in 354 injured service members, and all 100 of the patients in the whole blood arm received fresh, warm whole blood, we should mention. So in the civilian setting, we looked at this topic here in Houston, and by we, I really mean our boss, Dr. Cotton, neither Patrick or I were around here yet, uh, but they published the only available civilian hospital use of stored whole blood uh, back in 2013. Now, in that study, modified whole blood was used because of safety concerns, so platelets still had to be transfused separately. Right. Not the case anymore. Correct. Now, we know that it can actually go through a Belmont. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, in the study, there were no differences in mortality, but in the non-head injured patients, starting with whole blood resulted in less of each individual component being transfused later and in fewer overall units of blood products being transfused in total. Hmm. So in other words, it looks like patients became hemostatic more quickly, so fewer products were needed even after cross-matching. All right. Yeah, and, and obviously the research here goes on. We're, we, we use whole blood a lot, mm -hmm. and uh, we got some great stuff in the works right now. Um, 
So there's other places looking at this as well. Certainly San Antonio is a big center, uh, and the pre-hospital especially, as is University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, uh, and, and more. Um, and the pre-hospital data is actually getting fairly robust, which is part of what prompted us to want to talk about this in a full-on episode. And it shows that whole blood component is as safe as component therapy, and that it's likely to decrease transfusion requirements. Yeah, and I would say that now the pendulum is swinging back to somewhere in the middle where the value of whole blood is again being recognized. There are still ongoing safety concerns for civilian use, but in general, and this is my own personal view, I see those as concerns based on a question of we don't normally do this here rather than a bunch of examples of we we have actually done this and here's the bad stuff that happened. So some of the resistance is probably a fear of the unknown. And I cannot disagree that safety is paramount with transfusions. But some blood banks in the U.S. are now getting comfortable with not fractionating a portion of their supply and handing those whole blood units over to the trauma center and, in some cases, the pre-hospital providers feeding into that system. So, Patrick, can we talk about how whole blood is used here at UT, just as an example, at the Memorial Hermann Reduke Trauma Institute? Yes. Yes, we can, actually. All right. So. All right. Um, our, I'm going to say this twice. So our whole blood is a certain type. So this is a low titer. We're going to talk about what all this means in a minute. A low titer, leukocyte reduced, cold stored type O, RHD positive whole blood. I'm going to say it one more time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Low titer, leukocyte reduced, cold stored type O, RHD positive whole blood. Okay. We use this blood for males of any age. And postmenopausal females are cut off as it's 50 for that. Now, note that I said RHD positive blood, so we're going to come back to that later and, and really break that down. Storage time for our product here, and this is being examined in more detail as we speak, is 21 days max. And we administer this whole blood through the Belmont and its unique filtration system. And uh, what we see is that we actually like to have a preservation of the activity of platelets. And in, in some cases, we actually see that these platelets may actually be activated in this process, so you get a better platelet activity. Another unique feature is that the helicopters uh, in our area, of which we have a very large system, uh, carry two units of whole blood each, and they can and do readily transfuse them uh, for very specific uh, signs of significant hemorrhage. So let's break some of those terms down because put in a big sentence, that's a little bit of a, a tongue twister. All right, this is going to be tough. All right. We're going to just focus. Uh, this is like a, you know, for, it's not a, this is not pat podcasty type stuff. So right. uh, if you are listening, I hope you, so far, this is making some sense. We're going to kind of sp- take a minute to like digest all of it, let it sink in. And right. I can't remember that. I still don't remember this stuff. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> that's why Jason's doing it. So. Well, it starts, it starts simple. Okay. okay? So start, start with simple. blood types or blood groups, you know, depending on what country you're from. There are 308 different blood group antigens, which is not something I knew. Like in med school, we just talk about ABO and RH, but there are 308 of these um, groups. The most important group, though, of course, is the ABO system. There's the A antigen and the B antigen. So you can have both, which makes you AB, or you can have neither, which is type O, or you can just have A or just have B. Generally, you make antibodies against the antigen that you don't have. You don't have. And those antibodies can cause agglutination, which of course is bad. That's akin to a severe uh, immediate hemolytic transfusion reaction. So we try not to have those. So A... B, AB, and O are then the major types within the ABO system. And I think 
most people should probably okay. recognize that. Actually, yeah, I know that. Okay, good. So we see we <laughs> started right, so we're simple. Gone. We're, we're fine. So let's discuss the RH system further in in a minute because that is actually way more complex than I uh, appreciated again before looking into this topic. So in general, just in general, we talk about uh, RH positive, which really means that you express the RHD antigen, or negative, meaning that you don't express that antigen. When the blood bank cross-matches blood for a potential transfusion, they're mixing samples to determine that the transfused product will be compatible to avoid these major immunocompatibility issues. For RBCs, for example, they'd mix donor RBCs with recipient serum and look for agglutination. All right, I'm getting this. Right? Because I actually am. The RBCs are the things carrying the, the A or B or both or neither antigen, and the recipient serum should have antibodies against what that recipient patient doesn't have. So the next term, leukocyte reduction. So that involves filters to reduce the white blood cells in the product, which can be a source of febrile, allergic, and other non-hemolytic reactions. Low titer, the next term, is really jargon, and it refers to a low concentration of antibodies against non-self A and B antigens. All right. That's Got good. it? I mean, about as clear as you can get. <laughs> I, I think so. No, honestly. So... In regards to low titer, if I'm type O and I donate a unit of blood and the blood bank wants to use it as a whole unit for a trauma center. Good for them. Yes. <laughs> I have to match a titer of less than 1 to 256 dilution. So 1, one to 256 for both anti-A and anti-B IgM antibodies for an uncross-matched transfusion to even be considered. Right. Generally, these donors are male and have not had exposure to other blood types, i.e. they haven't been transfused previously. The cutoff for low titer, we should mention, varies by region, you know, 1 to 128, 1 to 256. Okay. Um, but if I want to give a cross-match transfusion, then it's always type-specific. Is that correct? Generally, that would be best, but there are plenty of exceptions that occur all the time based on blood availability. And I think these are important to know, not necessarily because you as a surgery resident, fellow, attending, whoever, not because you're the one dealing out the blood, but you really should know this because this is what your patient may be receiving, and it has some implications for different side effects and transfusion reactions. So let's start with RBCs because that's probably the best example to start with. A type A negative patient could receive A negative, ideally, or O negative if that's what available, as long as it's cross-matched. And then for plasma, it's the reverse. So for plasma, a type A negative patient could receive A or AB plasma, generally without regard to the RH type, since RHD antibodies are, are uncommon, uh, and these donors are excluded from donating in general anyway. So in other words, they're really not part of the available blood pool, at least here in the, the U.S., Type O positive recipient could receive RBCs from type O positive or type O negative and can receive plasma from pretty, any blood group, pretty right? much any blood group, okay. right? So, again, the plasma is usually the reverse of the RBCs. But there, it's, there's exceptions. It's still a so little more complicated. The next wrinkle, yeah. um, and we mentioned this just for completeness. 
There are common exceptions beyond this too. So you'll see uh, in some areas that type A plasma is commonly substituted for type AB plasma as long as the anti-B titer is low, which it often is in the U.S., and that's why a lot of centers use that. There's such a demand for AB plasma that as long as the type A is good enough and doesn't you know, carry any true additional risk, then they'll use that in place. Yeah. I saw this not long ago, and I had to stop for a minute and, and, and recognize this as an actual um, an actual exception, that AB plasma for it. Right. Yeah. And it can be concerning at first if you haven't seen that before. Um, and it's always good to raise the concern if you do have a question, but uh, those are the, the common exceptions, at least here in the U.S. All right. All right. So, so we think that then uh, low titer, leukocyte-reduced type O whole blood may be the best for bleeding patients, at least initially. Again, and, and this is – it may be the best. Yep. Certainly, like you mentioned, um, the pendulum swinging – we have some some early data that is definitely in support of whole blood, but this is not fully fleshed out yet, I should say. Yeah, and there are plenty of, of naysayers, people on the opposite side. But, it, but it, I think in the pre-hospital setting especially, there's some good data out there. Right. So, but what if we don't have whole blood? Okay, what if that's not available? Or, um, you know, what happens after we can get an actual cross-match? Maybe we're not so urgent that we need to give whole blood and we mm-hmm. need to have access to component therapy. So in those cases, we're going to rely on balanced resuscitation, a.k.a. one-to-one-to-one resuscitation. Right. So let's talk about balanced resuscitation. One-to-one-to-one resuscitation, just like whole blood, um, can restore tissue oxygenation, uh, avoids platelet and coagulation factor dilution beyond the percentages that we already talked about, uh, and replaces lost hemostatic potential, especially when you compare that resuscitation to crystalloids. Right. For sure, yep. crystallized. So, again, maybe not as good as whole blood in some settings, uh, but certainly what is available to just about uh, all centers. So data to support a balanced resuscitation, again, started with the military and with some retrospective studies, then some civilian retrospective data, a big break with PROPER, uh, which was the big, large, randomized controlled trial. Okay, so we've mentioned some of the military data already. How about examples from early civilian studies? Yeah, so in one retrospective study of 467 massively transfused trauma patients uh, published in Annals by John Holcomb in 2011, 30-day survival was increased in patients transfused at high FFP to RBC ratios, and they define those as greater than 1 to 2. Again, that's FFP to RBC is how they reported their ratios in that study as well as in those transfused at a high platelet to RBC ratio, again defined as greater than 1 to 2. Okay. Again, so it's retrospective, but this study also showed that the combination of high FFP and high platelet to RBC ratios was associated with decreased truncal hemorrhage and increased 6-hour, 24-hour, and 30-day survivals with no change in deaths due to multiple organ failure. So that led fairly directly to proper. Patrick, can you walk me through that? I most certainly will. So the proper trial, this is like, this is so big, right? If you're going to do you know, a general surgeon or focus on trauma surgery at all, the proper trial comes up. You should probably be able to discuss All the time. Yep. So this is a detailed one. We're going to do a real, this is a high, this is a 3,000 foot kind of, 30,000 kind of foot view of this study itself. But the proper trial randomly assigned 680 patients with major bleeding from severe trauma to receive transfusion of one versus two units of packed red blood cells for every unit of FFP and platelets. And it found slightly better outcomes with the one-to-one-to-one approach. That's right. Patients assigned to -to -to one-to-one-to-one were also more likely to have adequate hemostasis. So in numbers, that's 86 versus 78%. 
and had fewer exsanguination deaths at 24 hours, 9 versus 15%. Overall mortality at 1 and 30 days were not significantly different between the groups, although there was a trend favoring 1 to 1 to 1 at both time points. Right, and adverse events were also, or excuse me, adverse events were also similar between the groups. All right, so let's let's talk about how that works, how you transfuse at 1 to 1 to 1 on a kind of a practical step-by-step approach. If it isn't an emergency situation, you would normally go through the process of uh, crossing and matching blood for your patient and allowing the blood bank to deliver that to you. And, of course, we all know that that can take a lot of time. But in severely injured trauma patients where we don't have that luxury, uh, we often use universal donor blood. Right. So ideally, in the setting of big-time trauma, some sort of massive transfusion protocol would be initiated, right? Uh, Now, the threshold to activate a massive transfusion protocol is dependent on the institution, uh, but is typically triggered by the volume of blood already transfused or pre-hospital vital signs or even the mechanism of injury. Well, Patrick, it's interesting you mentioned that because we've got some numbers. This is a good one. I like this. So a trauma surgeon or if you know, it's a good little tidbit. Yeah, I guess anyone activating an MTP, although we're focused on trauma surgery here. So someone will activate the MTP appropriately 86% of the time if the patient has two or more of the following. Number one. Heart rate above 120. Number two. Systolic blood pressure less than 90 millimeters of mercury. Three. A positive fast exam. Four. Penetrating trauma mechanism. Or five. Prior use of uncrossed match blood. So again, Two or more of those, 86%. 86%. You're going to be right Yep. when you call, the, call on that massive Pretty good call for now, know, basic stuff. Okay, so that's pretty cool being right and all. But it's important really to remember that you can call for that massive transfusion pack, right? They can always be returned if you don't use it. Right. Um, and, you know, but not having them on hand can really be a lethal omission. So it's certainly better to, uh, to uh, more readily call for the massive transfusion than being shy about it. Yeah, and you know what? N- more numbers about that. So for every minute that you delay MTP when you actually need it, mm-hmm. that's associated with a 5% increase in mortality. That's a study that uh, we published here in Houston a few years ago. Yeah. Again, we, I mean our bosses, really. Yeah, but, but the point being, don't be shy. Yep, call exactly. it. You can, you can walk that cooler right back to the blood bank and, and, and no harm, no foul. So... Jason, you know, what, when we call for that massive transfusion pack, what's actually in it? All right. So, and this is institutional specific, right? It, but it is. It varies a little but bit. It's but it's pretty similar. But we can go board. through kind of what the general cooler is going to contain. Usually, there are four to six units of type O PRBCs, four to six units of thawed AB plasma, and that could be uh, of the subtype of thawed plasma. It could be um, uh, FFP that's undergone thawing, but it's still within the 24 hours, but some type of liquid form of AB plasma, and one five or six pack of platelets, or instead of the six pack, an apheresis unit of platelets. The RBCs are O, since we don't want recipient antibodies binding to A or B antigens, like we just reviewed a few Mm -hmm. minutes ago. And the units can be LUCA-reduced or washed to reduce the donor leukocytes down to nearly eliminated levels. Again, a term we defined earlier in the podcast. Mm -hmm. So that does come at a cost of about 10% of sacrifice of RBCs due to lysis. Uh, But again, you get the leukocytes down to almost nil. And so after accounting for all this, each red cell unit contains about 
200 milliliters. That varies, of Mm -hmm. course. And we'll raise the hemoglobin by about a point, just like the regular unit that you're transfusing transfusing in the non-emergency setting. And then the hematocrit by about three percentage points, uh, unless there's continued bleeding. Right. In regards to that pesky RH antigen, uh, generally only O negative is used in women of childbearing age due to the potential for fetal complications. And and like I said earlier, we keep pushing it back to the end. We're going to dive in on that. Yeah. So next is plasma. Plasma is really complicated in terms of the nomenclature, but we'll try to stay out of the weeds on this. Fresh frozen plasma is frozen very soon after collection, and it requires thawing before it can be transfused. Generally, frozen things don't go through IV lines very well. There's also liquid plasma, which is collected and stored cooled, but that product is never frozen. And that limits the storage life compared to FFP, but it means that it's already liquid and you don't have to thaw it in order to use it. You can also thaw FFP and keep it cooled past the 24-hour mark and on the ready for transfusion later, and that product is called thawed plasma. There are uh, certainly uh, specific hour limits on all these definitions of types of plasma, but clinically, uh, that's really the basics. And uh, what you have depends on your hospital and its blood supply. And usually it's AB since AB blood does not contain antibodies to A type A or type B blood. And remember that we don't know the recipient blood type until the typing screen is back. So we have to use plasma that won't lice the recipient circulating RBC. That's one of the simple kind of core exactly. fundamentals. And won't we'll lice them in basically you know, whatever blood type the recipient ends up having. As we hinted earlier, type A plasma can commonly be safety, safely substituted for AB as a universal donor given the rarity of type AB and the high demand for AB plasma across the country. Many centers have been doing this for years. A typical FFP unit in terms of volume is approximately 250 milliliters. So, Patrick, what other components are there to discuss? We've covered RBCs and plasma. Yeah, so platelets and cryoprecipitate. So let's start with platelets. So platelets are stored at near room temp and are obtained one of two ways. So an apheresis unit consists of platelets suspended in a small amount of plasma that's drawn from a single donor. Whereas pooled platelets combine around five or six donors, so hence the name five or, or six-pack. So a five or six-pack should raise the platelets platelet count by approximately 50,000 uh, to 60,000. Now, for emergency release, AB is ideal, but A is also commonly substituted. And in terms of ABO compatibility, you really want to think of platelets like plasma, right? Because most of the actual physical volume of that platelet, uh, that bag of platelets is actually plasma. Yeah. So but something good to know. Remember the, the platelets in that platelet pack are actually a minority of the volume of what you're giving. So you mentioned cryoprecipitate. Cryo is the component of plasma that primarily contains factor eight, uh, factor five, and fibrinogen. And as the name suggests, it's collected Uh, from FFP after thawing the FFP around 1 to 6 degrees centigrade, then centrifuging it and the precipitate is collected. Hmm. And so the really creative name is cryoprecipitate. Love it. So this is the best blood product for treatment of low fibrinogen, and it really isn't considered in that 1 to 1 to 1 ratio. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is where something like thrombelastography can be useful, but, but more on that later. 
Uh, serum fibrinogen level really doesn't provide a good representation of function because it doesn't account for activity, whereas a, a TEG uh, in the K and the alpha angle and to a degree the maximum amplitude help to show the functional fibrinogen activity. Yeah, yeah. and we're definitely going to talk about TEG and rotem parameters uh, in the next episode. That's, that's essentially what yeah, we're going to segue into. Too much to into. go into right now. <laughs> Sorry, my brain's already about to explode. So uh, we uh, should also mention that cryo is the main source of fibrinogen in the United States, but that in Europe... Uh, fibrinogen concentrates are actually used more widely, and uh, there's ongoing research about which one of those two are better or safer. We should mention that giving uncrossed match blood is an independent risk factor for mortality after major trauma, even after adjusting for ISS. That's not a reason to avoid transfusing someone if they really need it, but uncrossed match products aren't as safe as cross matched products. So if you can wait for the cross match, you, you should wait. And I'll also interject another quick disclaimer. We are talking about a common way to go about massive transfusion, not necessarily your way. Your blood bankers and policies should dictate the bounds within which you transfuse these products. Yeah, certainly good important points here. Now let's, let's touch on the RH status. So RH stands for rhesus, like the monkeys. There's a long history there. But if you um, are RH positive, you express the D antigen on your red blood cells. Um, now, in some people, the D gene may be present, but it's actually not translated or expressed. So, Yeah, so in general, 85% of the U.S. population is RH positive. Hold on. So 85% of the population RH positive. Yeah. Again, we're worried about giving RH positive blood to RH negative people. You're talking about the, po- the population within the United States? Right. Yeah. and 85% RH positive. And again, we're using jargon here because RH positive really means RHD positive. But again, that, that's how you'll see this written in almost all clinical scenarios because we don't worry quite as much about the rest of the RH group except in you know, those few people that are sensitized and, and really need a more thorough um, type and screen and then a later cross-match because they're producing antibodies. Right. So, so why is the D antigen actually important? Well, so... The D antigen is second only to ABO in terms of immunogenicity. Okay, so um, now we avoided uh, going into detail about our RH antigens earlier during the discussion when we talked about ABO typing. So let's talk about that now. Why don't we want to use, for instance, O positive whole blood in young women? Now, is this all about the hemolytic disease of the newborn? So what we worry about in female recipients is alloimmunization and, yes, future hemolytic disease of the newborn. And just to remind ourselves, this is when an Rh-negative woman who previously had been exposed to Rh-positive blood is now producing antibodies that opsonize RBCs in her Rh-positive fetus, leading to phagocytosis of those RBCs. Right, and then the end state of that is hydraps fetalis, right? Um, but alloimmunization isn't a 100% certainty, and this is, uh, this is actually key because it's actually unlikely to occur in a major trauma where there's massive blood loss. The theory is that the body and its immune system has a lot more to worry about, probably exacerbated by the temporary immunosuppression that follows trauma, so only a fraction of people would seroconvert. Of course, that's in generic terms, not necessarily scientific ones, but, but that's the general theory. Right, and since only 15% of the U.S. population is RH negative anyway, the math works out such that in Houston, at least with our demographics, it would take almost 100 years to produce two dozen alloimmunized women. And the, the quick math works out such that 
male uh, over female in terms of the injured population that we see. Women are just you know less less commonly injured and less commonly need a massive transfusion protocol activated. We have, like the rest of the U.S., about 85% of the recipients would be Rh positive, so this doesn't even affect them. And and so working the, down that math chain. Those Rh negative women who get Rh positive blood, you can even further reduce the risk of allo immunization at the time that they're given the Rh positive uh, positive blood with Rogam, which again the generic uh, term is anti D immune globulin. Okay, all right. So let's say that woman does get this blood, whose whose life you've saved, so by the way. We've saved their life, right? Okay. They make it through, and then they get pregnant years later. And they happen also to have an initial Rh antibody screen that's positive at her first prenatal visit, and she has a Rh negative fetus. And in, in these circumstances, uh, there are specialists within the OBGYN, OBGYN community uh, that can help treat these patients and reduce risk uh, uh, to the children. Yep. So the risk is is there, and no one wants to be responsible for alloimmunizing a woman of childbearing age. Although, in our estimation, the absolute risk may be overstated at times in the trauma setting. Right. All right. So, so, so that pretty much sums it up. That's a it's a tough topic, and I hope I hope our listeners are able to kind of to, to stay plugged in because that's a lot of information. Um, and now, before we finish, I want to circle back on the dictum we visited earlier that a bleeding trauma patient should only receive blood, nothing else really. Um, and some folks will extend that to say that you know if you're giving your trauma patient vasopressors that you're failed, that you've not uh, kept up with their resuscitation. Now, without a doubt, finding and stopping the bleeding and quality resuscitation of the blood is paramount, right? Absolutely paramount. Now, that being said, I want to introduce something new here. There was a recent randomized control trial from Dr. Kerry Sims at um, Penn and and now Ohio State. And it was published in JAMA, and it showed that low-dose supplementation uh, with vasopressin uh, in patients with trauma and hemorrhagic shock required less product and developed less DVTs. And so a very interesting study, uh, again, kind of going against that dictum that, that bleeding trauma patients should not be treated with vasopressors. So I'd recommend checking out uh, actually the East TraumaCast uh, episode uh, in which they discuss these findings with Dr. Sims. So keep that in mind uh, when someone tells you that vasopressors play no role whatsoever. Great. So that about does it for this episode. Okay, so before we go, we're going to reiterate a few key points. Number one, we want to resuscitate those bleeding patients with blood. Whole blood, if available, may be superior to balanced resuscitation using component therapy. If not using whole blood, we definitely want to transfuse our patients in one-to-one-to-one fashion of plasma to platelets to RBCs. A surgeon will correctly activate an MTP protocol 86% 86% of the time, if the patient has two or more of the following, heart rate above 120, systolic blood pressure less than 90, positive fast, penetrating trauma mechanism, or prior use of uncross blood. And finally, try not to give young women RH positive blood, but if you need to in an emergency situation with no alternatives, know that the risk of alloimmunization in a massively bleeding patient is actually quite low. Great. All right, so that wraps it up uh, for part one of this discussion regarding transfusion medicine and bleeding and TEG and reversal. We're going to talk next time about TEG and reversal of specific anticoagulants 
and antiplatelets agents. Until then, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.